0: Hello you gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty Podcast. Elaine here. How are you all doing? I hope you're all keeping well, being kind to yourself and each other. Today I chat with the brilliant Catherine Farmer. Catherine is a director, producer and co-founder of the Playwright Laboratories Festival which is currently happening at the Arcola Theatre in London. We chat about Catherine's career, her work in America, uh, the development and uh, production of uh, the festival and the fact that Right now, you can see 10 plays from around the world um, at the Arcola until the 5th of May. All details are in the show notes of today's episode. We chat lots of other things as well, but um, we talk about the things that maybe we need to know more about when you're at drama school, um, the things that are really outdated in our industry, like not paying interns. Um and making sure that people are paid for their work. Um, so we chat all about all of those things, you know, things that PNN are very passionate about. And talking about being passionate about PNN, thank you as always to our persistent pals and nasty heroes who support us on a regular basis. And if you would like to support us, if you can support us, you can do so by becoming a persistent pal or a Nasty Hero, or you can donate the price of a cup of coffee to us. All details for that are in the show notes of today's episode as well. By doing so, you help keep the podcast going, you help keep the coffee mornings going, and you allow Louise and I to do our advocacy work, um, which is happening in the background. And um, there'll be quite a big announcement about some of the advocacy work that I've been doing um, next week, uh, which is... Very exciting and I am very uh, proud to be a part of the work that I and many others have been doing on uh, a project um, which you will hear much more about very soon. If you like the podcast, please remember to subscribe, download, 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 review <laughs> and comment on, uh, and share uh, the episode. Um, it really does make a huge difference to the algorithm and it allows our in Incredible guests to be as heard by as many people as possible. You can follow us on all social media Twitter at persistent nasty, Instagram at persistent and nasty, Facebook persistent 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 and nasty. (laughs) Send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com and I am going to attempt to reinvigorate our TikTok. I don't know if I'm too old for it, but hey ho, we'll give it a go. You can also follow Louise and I on social media. Louise is at Ms. Louise Oliver on both Twitter and Instagram, and I am at Elaine Stirrett on Twitter and at Elaine.stiditt on Instagram. Oh, now for today's episode, oh, don't know, something fizzy, maybe a wee Prosecco, maybe a wee. Does anybody still drink Schlur? <laughs> Uh, some fizzy apple juice maybe an apple ties um, or coffee a chai latte or you know you can always just have a good old cup of tea sit back relax and enjoy hi Catherine welcome to the Persistent and Nasty podcast thank you for having me Um. so for everyone listening today I am chatting with Catherine Farmer uh, theatre director, producer. Um, there has been a lot. You have done a lot, Catherine. Um, seven years in California, is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for our listeners, if you could give us a little potted history of you, what got you started in this industry, Um. and then your kind of trajectory to this point of you having your very own um, festival that's happening right now. Indeed. Yeah, I think th-
1: uh, there's a really uh, a, two ways of looking at how my career kind of came about. And I think the, the the version I like to kind of look at and consider is the people that took me to this place. And actually, my career has been a celebration of women who have uplifted other women. And I think that is incredibly rare. And when you meet another woman who is... um pulls a chair up at the table and says, here, like, what is your opinion? How do you feel about this? Like, what play do you want to put on? Oh, or whatever it is. I think um, that's really been where the opportunities have come from for me. Um, There is an amazing teacher who um, I have to kind of owe a lot to, who sadly passed away actually whilst I was doing my A-levels Um." And that was the first introduction to um, jobs that aren't acting. And I think there was a really interesting point where I was in school and didn't really, I was kind of coasting and I don't really feel like I had any direction or one subject that really called me. And it was my drama teacher who had said, why don't you work backstage on the school play? Why don't you come sit in the booth and understand what sound design is? Why don't you, so really just having my eyes opened to a career backstage through school helped me understand that there is a world out there if you're not an actor and I think that that was like a huge um revelation to me at 16 and um I think um when I went to university that was really the place that I I went to a few auditions because I was like I think I I think I like. Theater. I think I like plays, but I don't really know what I'm doing. And I remember going to a few auditions and being like, "I am so out of my depth here. This is not where I am at my at my most um, comfortable." This, but I also felt like I really understood what was going on. And I remember talking to um, someone who was like in the theater society and just said, "I really like theater, but I just don't know where I fit." And they said, "Well, actually." there's a playwright who's written a little short thing. I don't know what to do with it. Why don't you see if you can do something with it? And so my first directing project was working with a writer. And I think that's really set the tone for the rest of my career, which has just been working with writers, directing new work, especially. And um, I think a lot of your, your guests have said this, but actually having a safe space to explore and play and get it wrong that place for me was university I know some people find it through creating companies with friends and like R&D time but I think that was really where I cut my teeth and learned um and got just got so much wrong and put on shows and and you know afterwards we'd say well like why didn't we why didn't we stop it here at the beginning when actually um what destroyed us and our creativity or, or the project is we took it too far we took it to a full production when we maybe should have just dialed back and and um gone back to the core of the show and and what the story is that we're trying to tell so that was three years of experimentation because I can't sit still um uh, I was also basically outreaching to everyone at all times trying to get a job as a reader because someone I knew who was um uh kind of an older mentor of mine who I'd met in my first year, who was a fourth year, had said um, that they had just got a job reading. And I was like, oh, I I really want to do that. I want to read more plays. And I, I know I'm going to be a better director. And at this point, I was quite solely focused on directing. Up until the pandemic, my whole career was focused on directing. And um, it led me to The Other Palace, which... Um, back in the day, was called St James's Theatre, and it's in. It was a new theatre that was built in like twenty eleven in London, and they said, "Well, there's not really anything to do, but you can come in and assist a show, and um, it's unpaid. We can't help you in any way, but we'll introduce you to a bunch of people. Come in." So I was interning um, on the side of my second year with them and spent the entire summer there. And it was um, fantastic because there was an American show that came in called Daddy Long Legs, which was a musical. And I remember going to meet this artistic director and I was just like, I really like theatre. I'm, you know, 19, I don't really know what I'm doing, but um, she was like, here's my card, come to brunch tomorrow with me. And that was really the moment when... um, I'd met my first artistic director. I had my first coffee chat and they said, this is what they do. This is like, they program work. They work with writers. They develop and commission work. And I was like, oh my, like, wow. Like this feels amazing to me. Um, and that was that relationship with Carolyn Burns, the artistic director of Rubicon Theatre Company in California that just um, took me to California. So um, I finished my degree after many, many uh, tr- attempts at, leaving it I just wanted to work I just wanted to be making theatre and I think actually I owe a lot to my parents for just saying stick it out get the degree because you've not come this far to not finish it and um I went out for a in in, so we applied for a J1 visa which is a cultural exchange where I go out and someone from that community comes to the UK so that was um kind of a, a miraculous experience of one woman just saying yeah I'll take a pun on this random British girl who doesn't really know what she's doing and during that time I read 50 plays we had 150 submissions of new work from emerging writers and I um they actually had a full-time dramaturg on their salary on like on in the theater which is really wow quite spectacular and I got to work with him and we sat down and we read all these plays and he taught me how to analyze work and and sort of um grade isn't the right word because I think that sounds like I'm sort of marking it but sort of like assigning um thoughts to paper in a way that's um can be kind of reviewed by others and actually that was a really exciting thing to to kind of learn and it really fine-tuned my own ability to read a play and understand what does the writer want to say what do they want to get out of it um and can I help them or can a can I rehearse reading or can a workshop help them achieve some like get to them to their goal can we identify what it is they're trying to say um So that was amazing and out of those 50 plays I picked one which was a play called 23 and a half hours by Kerry Krim which again is another woman who took a punt on a 20 year old and said yeah you can take this show you can develop it. Um, So I developed it over two weeks and it resulted in two rehearsed readings that were a week apart and the audiences in California got to see if you bought a ticket to one you had to come to both it was a sort of the deal which was come and see work and see how it's developed with your feedback kind of thing and Rubicon made a promise to produce it in its fullness so I came back home and um, applied for a visa and um, to to go out and work on that, that one show so that one show took me a year to I worked on that for an entire year I was an assistant I was an assistant to the assistant director on the first production and then I was the assistant director because the assistant director became the associate director and um, it went to um, a few different theatres and that was the first time of actually being in a room with professional actors and watching how really how um, an assistant associate relationship is formed as well and having, you know, literally just being the tea girl, doing anything and everything. And I think that's actually one of the things I'm really trying to change um, in my own as I get older and I have people shadowing me and interning with me and learning from me is that actually it has to be like paid. I, th- I think I've done so much work now where I haven't. Um, I've taken it for the experience Um, And this is all because um, people will house me. People will say, yes, you can sleep in my guest room or, you know, I didn't live in London. I'm from Brighton. So even when I was interning in London, it took like my mum calling around friends being like, Hey, can Catherine come stay with you for the summer? Like it, it comes to other people saying, yes, I'll, I'll support you and I'll look after you and I will give you this opportunity. And that's not easy to always be calling favors. So I think um, I have actually an intern working with me for a year, and I am paying her because I think yeah. it's um it I, it doesn't sit right with me. And I think actually, um, yeah, it's uh, it's one of the things that we all do to gain
0: experience and it's just not right. Um, it's, it, you're so you're so right. it's it's um, it's one of these parts of the industry that it is really outdated and it stops access. Um, to many people um, who you know we could have incredible uh, directors actors designers um, that can't do it because they can't do these unpaid jobs because they don't have the financial stability of maybe parents or money from behind or they don't they've not had a job yet because they're still really young so they don't have any savings or they have caring responsibilities that they then have to Find a way to make sure that the people that they're caring for are supported while they're working it. So absolutely agree with you. Pay people for their work. Excellent. Yeah.
1: And I think actually it took um talking to friends outside of our industry to go, oh my, you you were paid for your <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that's been a huge kind of shift for me as well. Um, but that was what led me to there. And I was in the States for five years um after so that was two years on and off and then five years full-time and I owe a lot to um two amazing women in their 80s called Irene and Judith who housed me for that entire time I was meant to stay with them for two weeks I moved into their guest room they became my grannies they they are my they are my family now and they um are donors of the theater who see everything And it really opened my eyes to there is a model in America that does not exist in the United Kingdom, which is the concept of a subscriber base. And I think that's where um, so much creativity can blossom when you have the financial stability of a subscriber base. So the idea is they buy one ticket, which is however many hundreds of dollars, and it gives them tickets to all six shows in the season and as a result carolyn burns would always program a new play a brand new play by an unknown writer most usually their first ever play maybe their second alongside the big starry musical the my fair ladies and the south Pacifics, and all of those other things and a shakespeare or an old coward or like a you know like a sort of Classic and um, whatever else kind of fit within sort of how her, she was aligning her season. Um, so that gave me five years of working with writers and pro- helping her program work and discovering new voices and finding stories. And they made me the in- director of international programming, which for America was mostly me bringing British writers to America. So um, it wasn't, it was a lot of kind of keeping in ta- like taps on what's going on in the UK and sort of reading a lot of, of those works and encouraging us to program. So we programmed like Heisenberg by Simon Stevens, which was a really big um, project that happened that it it went really well because I think audiences had never seen anything like it like non linear storyline, no set. It, it felt really, exciting for a theatre who had in the previous sort of series only done um like the work that wasn't new work that was still it's new-ish work new work to the west coast um to be experimenting with structure and um like lung um by uh oh my gosh I'm just blanking on on all of the shows that we oh, did a uh, Duncan McMillan thank you yes yeah. work that um and audiences really resonated with it. So the more we would do a show like Heisenberg, and the more audiences came and enjoyed it, the more that they trusted the work that I was sort of suggesting. And at the same time, the thing that I noticed was that every show that we ended up programming was a, written by man. And again, that would is a thing that yeah. <laughs> ends up always happening. And I think. It's something that I am, again, trying very hard to um, step away from. And um, I realize this is a very long answer to your question, but... Um, Not it, at all. It's great. It's great. What <laughs> um, what well, well, the background of me? So my dad then got really sick. And I think there was this reckoning that happened in my life when Trump became president, Brexit happened, my dad um, got sick. And I was like, it felt like the world was imploding. And I had to just go home. And I think for someone who had been so nomadic, and I think I've been a very, uh, for 29 years of my life, I think I lived out of a suitcase. My parents divorced when I was three, three to six years old. I lived from house to house, place to place. I got very used to, I mean, I have amazing parents, but I got very used to like my best friends' families and sleepovers and like trying to live this life of like constantly on the move and not wanting to kind of settle in one place because that's scary. Um and I think it just came to me like I need home. I need home now. This is no longer a safe space for me. There was also a series of things like with gun crime that happened in the town where I was living and it just became I'm I don't have the tools to live here anymore and it 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 was overnight and i think one of the things that happened was a show was programmed called it was an adaptation of stones in their pockets the irish play that was performed by two amazing mexican actors the bachias brothers who are like tom hanks of mexico they are phenomenal and we brought them in to do this production and this is a community that I loved. I was entrenched in. I lived with them. I coffeed with them. And we had um, alternate English language nights and Spanish-speaking performances. And we brought in communities who'd never come to the theatre before. We had student matinees with kids who um, hadn't seen shows before or seen shows in their native language. I, it was beautiful, amazing show. But we had a huge walkout rate on the English-speaking nights. And I was asked to go and stand in the foyer and sort of just try and talk to people as they were leaving and just say, why why are you leaving? And this person, they were not a donor of the theatre. They were not someone that I knew intimately. And I just said, I'm really sorry, ma'am. Can I ask why you're leaving the show? Because we would really like to understand what our patrons want. And she turns to me and she says, documented immigrants shouldn't have a voice and she walked out oh wow the floor just fell from under me and I was like this is I I can't I can't do this but also how great that we brought a show in that made people feel that and maybe it's about having that conversation and I and I and I always think back to all of the things I should have said in that moment but I just let her walk out the door and I that's one of my biggest regrets because I don't feel like I handled that in the way that I should have done and I've now done shows where we've dealt with big themes or um you know things that have been very polarizing and when an audience member comes up to me or will come up to an actor, I now do a session with actors about like talking to patrons after a show and about a duty of care to yourself and like to never put yourself in a position where you, you know, we, we did a show recently about sexual assault and we had a lot of people come and talk to our cast members. And I said, never put yourself in a, in a vulnerable position by talking to the audience if you're not safe, but also if someone can say something or wants to say something or, we've had cases where people said, well, that wasn't an assault. And you go, okay, you have to go, what, what's happened to them? What are their experiences? We, How, what, how do they have to deal with this? To, um, But also the fact that they want to talk about it. So to give them that space to, to listen and to maybe help them reframe an opinion or whatever. So I think that one moment as well was really, whilst I kick myself that I couldn't have spoken to her and try to get to the bottom of it and maybe try and change her opinion I hope that by her just saying it out loud and hopefully just like watching my jaw drop she realized that actually um that that's just not a, a <laughs> it's just not how you should be as a human being um but so all of this happened within I'm not joking like a, a month and I came home and um had caring duties for my dad for nearly three years he's he's still with us and um he's he's in a much better place i had applied for a ma at bristol Vic theater school because actually coming home and having no contacts was the most lonely thing i've ever done and it made me realize oh like i was part of something and i've come home and i'm part of nothing and i go call some friends but they've You know, they people who did my degree at Warwick have gone on to do amazing things, and the companies were already existing and going on and doing these great things. Or people would become teachers, people went into events, people went into all sorts of different industries. And actually, I felt like I was a little bit left behind with all of these like experiences and knowledge and and um, a CV. I went for interviews, and people would say, "Well, but I don't know what this theatre is. I don't know." I don't I can't understand your career or or I don't know what these are like our theatre won a bunch of awards when I was there and I'd like put them in my cv and I said I don't know what these are and I was like but I was a part of a season getting a nomination and that's why it's on my cv it should have
0: there's such there's such a was such a it's a such a British thing, I think. And I say British because I think it it covers all of the four nations in that sense of there is an attitude sometimes of like, oh, you went away. So, you know, what well, that kind of like, I know a lot of Scottish actors, for example, who get it when they move back from London. It's this kind of sense of, oh, we weren't good enough for you then, but we're good enough for you now. Uh, attitudes. But also, like, that answer is just so ridiculous. There's this thing called Google. You can find out what the award was for. Like, you know, like, it's so dismissive in the moment of someone being in there. There's a, That's a power
1: play. Absolutely. And I think when I left Bristol, the pandemic wasn't that far off. I did a few shows and the pandemic hit and I thought, I'm going to just create a company that's, like, anti-gatekeeping, that's no longer a boys' club. It is just a safe space for anyone emerging or established to get involved and that's where the playwrights Laboratory has come from which is exactly that feeling of don't dismiss me <laughs> we i i can bring something to the table and i am pa- like i am so passionate about new writing and it has been the thing that i've 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 forged my career in it and then i come home and i'm like i can't i'm just constantly feeling i have to justify And I feel like a big part of it has been like feeling unworthy. And I think that's something I've been dealing with like my whole life is imposter syndrome. And I think I'm sure there are so many artists that feel the same way that even when you get a job or you get in or you get funding and you get to make your project, it's still always like that feeling of imposter syndrome. And I think that's probably never gonna go away, but I think that's something that I'm really actively combating. I think all of the things that have led me to. Where I was, like it like living like there was four of us in a two bed flat at one point in the pandemic, all just going like what what is what is life, what are we doing? how do we find um our community and our people online and keep and protect ourselves and you know um carry I don't know like I think it it just came from like all of these conversations and like the world being in the same place to go I'm going to create the playwrights laboratory and yeah that that we I mean it started very informally in 2020 I legitimized it as in I literally made it a company limited company in 2021 and then last year I thought let's actually stop saying I'm going to do all this stuff and actually do it so yeah, so last year I started um properly creating the playwrights laboratory and um this year i'm sort of seeing the fruits of my like you know all of the work that daniel and i put into in like to create the foundations are now paying off now and actually just connecting with writers and getting to know people across the world and that's the thing that the playwrights laboratory is for it's not country specific i'm based here my my co-founder is based in cape town and our goal is just to create a platform that showcases brilliant new work that is looking for a creative home in whatever way that may be so we um film readings of plays we where um in general we're partnering with theatre companies to present um filmed readings in tandem with pre-existing new writing initiatives mainly because at the moment um We're not a non-funded organisation. So at the moment, Daniel and I um, earn money through the theatre companies taking us on to to work with the writers. Um, But um, in the process of becoming a charity, in the hopes that um, we can provide R&D time, we can do all this ourselves as well. And also that Daniel and my time is covered and that we can bring on a team of other readers and dramaturgs as well to have, writers can have free access the whole point is that it's that's it's free for the writers um so that's been a really wonderful experience of actually kind of putting on a more producing artistic director hat of actually going okay I'm no longer reliant on other people to give me work and I'm actually just going to do this myself and um the, the this this festival um I just became an artistic associate of the Arcola Theater in East London. And they've, you know, we can only make work when other people, like it, it takes a village, you know? They, they're giving us space for free. They're giving us um, so many resources. We've had arts council funding. I've got 37 actors, 10 plays being showcased. They're all readings of new plays that are from around the world. So we're presenting two plays from Japan that have been translated into English by the Jap- um, Japanese Playwrights Association. We've got plays from Australia, two plays from Australia. One by a playwright who um, was born and raised in Singapore and orphaned and moved uh, and put into the care of her estranged brother who lives in Australia who happened to be a real life gangster. So it's her sort of, her sort of autobiographical story about that. And we've got a beautiful play by a Kenyan writer who's now based in Oxford in the UK. Um, We've got plays from really all all corners of the world that are all stories that I would love to tell, but I'm not maybe necessarily the right director to to take that story. There's a play, a brilliant docudrama about the murder of George Floyd, which um, was written during the murder um, or, or in the aftermath of the murder, and Tylee Scheider who wrote it, lived in an apartment block that looked over where the actual place was, and it's um how ha- and it's such a big part of like w- you know it was such a big part of the narrative here and opening up conversations about Black Lives Matter over here, and it just felt like um I I really want to bring this this story to the UK. I really want to give Tylee that exposure over here. And um, we have an amazing director called Anastasia directing it. And it, it feels like such a moment to be able to be in a position to say, I'm going to pair this writer and this director and I'll go and have fun. Like go and play, go have your Zoom calls, talk about the script, like, go through rewrites together. And they go into rehearsals on Friday and we'll see the reading on Saturday and they get, um, yeah, two full days um. And some of the writers that are here and will be in the room, some were joining via video calling. And it's it's just really special to be able to remember that we are like we are all in it together in a way. We are all, we all work towards the same goal, which is telling stories and um and and, and like just trying to serve the story and hope that these play readings will lead to a conversation with someone who can take them forwards and that's the goal that's always my goal with the Pirates Laboratory is connections and um
0: hoping it leads to 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 full productions in the future it's incredible I mean first of all the amount of actors who are being employed like and are working with you um then obviously you've got your directors like that in itself and a 10 10 plays 10 plays eight directors
1: and 37 actors, all being paid equity rates.
0: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Catherine. Oh. <laughs> like, like it just, but this is what's really important. I think it just shows it can be done. Yeah. I'm sure it was a lot of hard work and a lot of a uh, dedicated time, but I think what's really wonderful to hear um, just as, well, firstly, as a, someone who loves theater, to be able to be exposed to as many different plays from as many different places as possible, I think is a wonderful thing. Um, it's how, well, it's how we move as human beings, right? It's like, you know, that's, that's the beauty of our art form. Um, but also as a performer, I think what's really lovely is knowing that um, s- these people are all getting a chance to have their work showcased and nobody is having to sacrifice anything. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Which very rarely happens. I I agree. I think we make so many sacrifices, especially in in the name of like theater. And I don't know if that's necessarily the same. I mean, and and other forms of creativity and creative practice. We I think it just becomes a part of to make art. You have to sacrifice yourself or your mental well being, um, or your pay. And actually to be able to create a, a space where everyone's time is paid for. And it's a limited time too, I think, as a limited time commitment. I only started casting about a month or before rehearsals began because I think as well, it's um actors who uh love working with new work, but also feel like they can't always say yes to something and because if a big TV job came up, there's always that balancing active. I really want to flex those muscles and those acting muscles and get into text, but also I have to get where the work is. And actually I think I've had a lot of success and I've found an amazing cast of people because I kind of waited till the last minute, which was a very stressful decision and choice. And I think a lot of people are like, why are you doing that? And I was like, because I'll get, I'll get a really exciting, I'll get a cast who are like ready and raring to go because I'll get the script and I'll go into rehearsals in two weeks and they're not sort of looking over their shoulder thinking oh have I signed up to something and I'm missing out on something else and I think I'm I'm not an actor but I have enough acting friends to understand like that's always the trade-off that you make um but I mean yesterday we were just in rehearsals for a play called passing by Topeka Guha and it's a um she's Calcutta born and now lives in the States and it's a play set in Britain about the British um, sort of colonization of nondescript countries. Um, this is set on a nondescript island and um, it's it's about brutality of human beings and class and um, how we treat one another and who is perceived as another. And it's a really, it's a big, deep, epic play that actually is so <laughs> current, unfortunately, and um, I just sat in on five minutes of rehearsals yesterday, and um, there's this big reveal moment where the, the 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 male character says something that is deeply shocking, deeply painful. Like it's the moment where you all go like <gasps> in the audience, and um, the way that the actor chose to do it, and then the 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 um, female actor who was working alongside, who's in the scene partner reaction was like oh me too and they both had this like this softness in um, without trying to give anything away for anyone who will read the play because it's actually a really vital moment in the play and it was a really great choice and afterwards they just said we haven't played with material since the past like we haven't played with plays Mm. so long that actually they just had to try some new things and I saw that one moment and I said to Eileen the director afterwards I was like this is that was never how I imagined that seemed to go but so valid the fact that there can be this big reveal and it does just live in this like yeah connection and that's okay like it, it, it's a pretty grotesque thing that he emits and um she yeah and I just I think that's the thing as well it's I hope that the actors will get out something out of it. And it's a fulfilling process for everyone involved because actually we all learn so much through, through these rehearsals. And um, I realised that was very cryptic and maybe I should have just said what it is, but...
0: <laughs> know, you no, to, it's like, good, it's good. It, no, it's good. I think like, because <laughs> um, it's something that you've kind of talked about, this idea of play, you've mentioned it quite a lot as well. And um, what you found at the Rubicon with this sense of the subscriber element to it. And um, I, as you've said, lots of our guests have talked about this kind of we don't get a chance to quote unquote fail um, as per as as creatives, and um, not even as performers, just as creatives and whatever part of that it is. And I know I've said it before, and I'll say it again, but some of the most beautiful moments come out of. A bit what someone might class as failure, but it gives you something new to play with, um, and that loss of play that's happened because of finances and time constraints, um, is a real shame. So what you're kind of platforming right now isn't just these playwrights, but it's about the creativity, yeah, of of a rehearsal space in that sense, which is I- lovely.
1: I really hope so I really hope so I think um, as the festival goes on as well I mean today we're in rehearsals for a play called Expelled which is about rape culture in schools and that's performed tomorrow night so again it will be really fun to just tap into that rehearsal process with another director and and sort of see how they're experimenting and playing with the material and that that play was being rewritten up until I was like, I have to print these now. Please stop making changes. Um, and I think there is something in also just like pens down. Let's just 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 stop like rerunning these teeny tiny rewrites, and let's just get it in in the space and hear it, and then and then we can see like if how much more tinkering needs to happen. But you might have just got it right, and it might just be. Um, a need to finesse and it's it's perfect and we need those raw edges yeah and I think actually I love plays that sort of have that like rough and readiness to them that don't feel overly crafted that don't feel overly rewritten or um and that's a really hard thing to say because I think I even found this I don't know I even found this in school like the essays I would write when I was a little bit under time pressure where I just kind of would like blurt it out and it would come from an opinion or a thought would always do better than the essays where I kind of would go over and over and rewrite and rewrite and add in and add in and chop and change like consistently I found that there's at least how I approach um things I'm not a playwright but I I I feel like I live in every play that I develop becomes a, a part of of me and I think sometimes um I do a lot of dramaturgy, but it's from the director's perspective, and I'm always very clear with playwrights that I say, whenever I give notes, it's about how characters interact with one another, and it's about love versus anything about structure or or whatever. And I, I sort of always approach a play through: do these characters love each other? And if they don't, how can we how can we force and find the love? Because even if it's a play about two completely two characters who are in not in a position to be in love with each other there has to be a driving force between them to warrant the scene to continue or or if it's a fraught relationship between a mother and a father or a mother and a daughter or uh um, whoever it is two friends or two lovers some there has to be something that's kind of like keeping these characters from from you know, even we fight the hardest with the people that we love the most. And I think even if it's not a love for them, it's a love for the child who they're fighting over, or it's a love for the 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 community that they're, they're trying to serve. Like it, there has to be love. And I think sometimes love is messy. And I'll say to, you know, we'll be working on a scene and I'll just say like, let's just boil it down to like one core essence. And like, it's okay if it's, it, you know, I think it's just about driving that one, like, what is their motivation? What are their intentions and objectives? And and like, let it it be underpinned with a sense of love. And I think that also comes to acting notes as well. Like, um, earn or burn, they have to earn each other's love and respect throughout the scene, despite the fact that it might be a colossal, like, shit show of a scene that's going to end in trauma and pain and darkness. Um that's kind of that's how I approach things and um uh that's probably not how a dra- like a literary dramaturg would approach things um but I think there's there's space for both approaches and I think that's um yeah you uh, you know I, I talk a lot to play I spend a lot of my days talking to playwrights about different work and there's never really one consistent um you know no playwright is the same and that's fantastic and no playwrights trying to say the same thing which is also fantastic but um I just want to always serve the story and I think that that's always what it boils down to and I one of the questions that I hate and I don't know how you feel about this is when people say oh what kind of theatre do you make it's typically from someone who doesn't like work in the arts, or whatever. And they say, oh, or like, wh- wh- what kind of theatre do you make? Or where, where do you, like, what theatre do you work for? Or those kinds of questions. Because I always think, oh, don't, like, you can't box us in. Yeah. Because actually there isn't one form of, there might be a, a, a similar tone or there might be a, a p- particular genre or, or idea that we explore through our storytelling that we're more drawn to. But like fundamentally, no, we can't ever make the same thing. Um, and I realize that's not a particularly profound note, but it's just something that like irks me
0: whenever I hear it. I'm just like, oh, but it's I mean, doesn't it? you know, like that idea of its so many people will resonate with that because we all get asked that question, and it's whether you're a director of the type of shows that you do. So, you know, are you a musical theatre director? Well, that's really limiting. It's pigeonholing. It's the same as casting an actor in a certain role. It's that, it's that thing of we are all more than just one thing. Yeah. And especially now, like in our industry, we're all more, most of us are more than just what we trained to be. Yeah, yeah. And, you Absolutely. know, you moved from directing to producing, artistic director. So, like, you know, that shit, that in itself is a huge shift. Absolutely, and I think it's really interesting
1: to be to like have to like become right left brained, and actually like look at Excel. Like, I think Excel would ter- has terrified me, and now I'm like, okay, I can do a schedule in an Excel document. I know how to. I can do this now, but it came from like hi, can you send me like an example of a call sheet? Or can you send me an example? Like it's taken almost having to just call people and say, I don't actually know how to do this one thing. Or like, I've tried to make a spreadsheet work and it's confusing my brain. Can you just show me how you do it? And like, you can take out, like, how do you budget? How do you draw up a budget until you've seen someone's budget? Like it's one of those things. And I'm so glad that UK producers on Facebook exist that there is a community of people online who will share like ACE grants, who um, uh, who will share um, other funding application templates and things like that, because actually it is, there are so many barriers to entry to make your own work. And um, I think this, it's been a steep learning curve for me in just like also just like creating a limited company. Having to like figure out that stuff is just, not something you ever think you have to do as a creative and no one at drama school sits you down and says okay this is this is how you do your taxes this is how you create work um, and I think you know I think we all want drama schools to give us more than they I definitely believe that drama schools can give us more than they give us and I definitely believe that drama schools have a duty to give um, everyone more tools um, to enter the industry and just know like the basic shit. Um, uh, I don't know if they're better now, but they certainly weren't very good in 2017 when I was at a drama school. Um, and I've been working for five years prior to that. I'd already figured out how to pay my taxes, but other people hadn't. And, you know, I, it shouldn't be down to the other students. And actually that's something that's really interesting as a director on an MA course at a drama school is that you're treated more like a member of staff than you are as a student. And so you're constantly like on this weird tightrope, which is also just being a director of, you want to fit in and you want to make friends and you but you also have to direct them tomorrow morning. You also are running their entire week of school or, you know, like you've been given... Um, these classes, and then actually like you're their teacher. So they don't, they can't see you. Like, you know, you have to almost like maintain that balance. And I think when you're early career director, I think that can feel really isolating when they're like your friends, but also at the end of the day, there has to be a level of like, we're all in it together, but at the end of the day, they have to see you as their director always. Um Some people take that very seriously, some people don't. And then the teachers will, yeah, they'll just drop you in and they'll say, Oh, Catherine, can you just take, I don't have anyone coming in this week and we've got a class who don't have anything to do. Do you want to do something with them? And you're like, um, yeah. Which was great for me because I had plays I could workshop. I did a lot of like random new play development sessions with with you know actors who were, you know, on their three year acting course in their final year and got really like hands-on tech-based time and I think that was really valuable for me and for them. but like I wasn't a teacher and I shouldn't have necessarily been in that position and I don't know where I'm going with this but um it, it yeah, drama schools are uh <laughs> a, a, a very, you know, I, I think we're learning and, and we've re, we're questioning the role of a drama school and how and how it trains us to be in the box. And um to to, to, to to be one thing. And actually, all of the actors that I know who have who I've trained with have actually gone and created their own companies. They're writing their own work. They're exploring their voice in so many other ways and their, their talent and their skill set and their creativity and their practice in other ways. And I and I'm so happy for them because actually it's really hard to just go to auditions and wait to be cast yeah. in something. Like, and I know you know we all have our side hustles and our other jobs and our survival jobs or muggle jobs however you want to frame it everyone calls them something different um but there's only so much fulfillment you can get from just auditioning maybe i don't know i would love for an actor to to be like no i disagree um but um to then actually just say no you know what i'm going to write this thing i'm going to explore this trauma this way or i'm going to write myself a monologue or i'm going to um, like explore spoken word or I'm going to write some poetry and like yes yes I'm like so for it and I think um, that's something that I'm realizing as well is for me it's becoming on the producing side of things and that's just like bringing people together to facilitate their creative their creativity is actually so fulfilling um, and I, I'm really hoping that you know the the, the festival even if it like ends on the 5th of May and that's the end and I we, were, we all just came together and we did 10 play readings and that was a moment in time and we move on and none of these plays go anywhere or, or anything, that's still a valid experience and moment. And I think it's so easy to be like, oh, I have to. I really want these plays to go, so like, whatever it is, like the pressure that you put yourself under. But actually you have to step back and say do you know what it will still be enough um and yeah. it will be what it will be and the right person you know we're filming them as well and i think this is actually what makes the what i'm trying to make as the playwrights laboratories thing is we have theater companies all around the world who have made a commitment to engage with all of the plays that we workshop through the playwrights laboratory so We've got like the Young Vic and we've got um, theatres in South Africa, like the Baxter Theatre. We've got theatres in the States, across Canada, who are all making a commitment to watching the play readings. And that's a big step. So even if it just means that 10 playwrights get their plays read and performed in front of these, you know, the recordings will be seen by those people, that in and of itself. I'm 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 pleased that we could facilitate that. And who knows? They might live in the back of someone's mind and they'll go and see their play a year or two, three years later and say, Oh, I remember that play. And actually, this is happening quite a lot. I'm noticing. I'm seeing work happening, and I've gone, oh my God, I read that play. I read their first play, or oh my God, I read maybe their second play, or I saw it in a pub theater, and now they're here like people don't forget and i think as a, a playwright i think it's really important to remember that like people do remember they do they do they remember stories they remember their like the plays they've read they remember names and they even if something's not right in that moment for that particular r&d or that particular development project they will remember you and i think every you know and you've just got to keep plugging away, I think. And and um one day it will pay off and they will you'll get that email or they'll come see that piece and it will
0: spark that conversation. So I think it's great, and I think it's something that you said at the very beginning when we were chatting. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Um you had said that your kind of the beginning of your career had been by women who had brought that chair the table for you and what you're doing with playwright laboratory is that you are creating a bigger table for people with chairs and I think that that's a really lovely a uh, full kind of circle moment for you as a, yeah. as a director to kind of know that that's what's happening because then that table hopefully just gets bigger and bigger and bigger with everyone that you're yeah. Uh, bringing in whether it's the playwrights or the other directors or the actors and then you know all these theatre connections that are being made which you know is a emerging playwright is incredible incredible and also for the actors to be seen by these theatre companies and the directors to be seen by these theatre companies is also is amazing and just give everybody the details of uh, how they can come along and see some of the wonderful plays that are being put on Yes, so the festival runs from the twenty fifth of
1: April until the fifth of May at the Arcola Theatre. They're all script and hand readings of plays from around the world, and they take place at seven pm. The plays run between like sixty and ninety minutes, um, and yeah, it's a pretty exciting, varied season of work that covers everything from the murder of George Floyd to um, gangster torn in Singapore to a grieving mother in Canada. To a, a rural factory in the middle of, like a fish smoking factory in rural Japan, and the workers um, who who were there working during the pandemic, um, it's it's a pretty spectacular lineup of playwrights from their, who have had success from their own countries, um, and getting their all they're all having their first ever exposure outside of their home country as well. So that's pretty beautiful. And so, yeah, that's at the Alcola Theatre, but also the Playwrights Laboratory for playwrights around the world. It is something we are not bound by location. So, do check us out. Um, we have rolling submission processes currently with the core in Corby. We're accepting submissions of plays from around the world um, and um, to get a, a filmed reading we also are looking and about to launch a bunch of other partnerships with other theaters for open submissions um so I'm hoping that if you keep an eye on us that there'll be more opportunities for playwrights over the coming months as well
0: really excited! yeah it's great. I mean it's- I think it's amazing what you're doing Catherine I think like you're giving a platform for so many people as I see and um so raging i'm not in london next week or uh, this weekend or i would be at the arcola because um just just the plays that you've described there is that's exciting that's what the year should be we should be getting to see as much and um seeing as many stories as possible um so before we finish i have a question yeah. for you yeah um so it's a question that we ask everyone and, and i think you do listen to the podcast so i think I you might know yeah, I'm like mean, right,
1: I'm ready. You're ready. <laughs> Excellent.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. <clears throat> well, I don't need to give my spiel either then about why we're called it, which is, makes me really happy. Um, so whatever you feel, uh, whether it's good, bad, and different, um, Catherine Farmer, what does the phrase "persistent and nasty" mean to you? Th- there's
1: three prongs to this answer which uh, resonate with me. With persistent and nasty, which is resistance to feeling unworthy. It's a resilience against rejection, but it's also fighting for change and the hope that will come through. And that's what persistent and nasty means to me.
0: Oh my God, I love that.
1: (laughs) I've been thinking about it for a while and it's interesting (laughs) because it's there's, yeah they're they're big powerful words that I think we all resonate with and it's so exciting hearing what other people's versions of it means um
0: so yeah it's a great question um so thank you for asking me <laughs> oh thank you so much um Catherine I will link everything um for a Playwright, playwrights laboratory in the show notes of today's episode along with and um, where everybody can follow you on all social media um and obviously your theatre company blue touch uh yeah oh yeah, yeah 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 um so i will put all of that in today's show notes but um yeah thank you so much for joining me it's been an absolute joy to chat with you today and until next time lovely listeners stay Stingality. nasty